Good morning. Good to see you. Well, thank you. It's good to be seen, huh? Philippians chapter 2 this morning. As we resume our series in the book of Philippians, after a couple of standalones around Revelation, He recognizes granddad. That's, that's what it is. Ha <laughs> ha. Nothing like being recognized as granddad. That's pretty cool. That's what he thinks, too. No. Um, today, I want to speak to us about principles for an effective life out of Philippians chapter 2. Paul's going to share with us that sometimes it's not that we're to do more. Sometimes it's just being effective or more effective in what we're already doing. Because I know many of you would be like, I can't do one more thing, which maybe that's true. Maybe sometimes though we're involved in, in things that you know, God never led us to either, but that's a whole other message. But one thing God wants us to be in life is to be effective. To truly have a life that makes a difference. And sometimes we think that we need certain power and position and prominence to be effective in this world. I mean, that's the world's way. And yet when you think and you look at the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ had no earthly power he had no earthly position. He had no earthly prominence. And yet there's never been a person on earth that lived a more effective life that made more of an impact than Jesus Christ. In fact, you can't even say, well, it, you need to live a long life in order to be effective because Jesus was only here for like 33 some years. And look at the difference that he's made and the ripples that have just went down through history. I mean, the whole reason I hope why you are here today is because Jesus Christ has influenced you and yet he's been gone for a couple thousand years. So what are the principles for an effective life? In fact, as I was thinking about that, uh, one of the verses out of the book of Ecclesiastes even came to mind. I, I love those Old Testament books of wisdom like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. And sometimes there's just these profound nuggets. And yet it's so simple. But when you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, right. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, you know, when, when an axeman is trying to chop something down, if he doesn't keep his axe sharp, then he has to put forth a lot more effort to get the tree down. And he's telling us that, again, sometimes in life, it's not a matter of not doing what we're doing, but maybe our ax needs sharpening. Maybe we need to just sharpen some of the things in our life in order for our effort to actually be more effective and go further so that we don't have to maybe even put forth the effort that we're already doing because maybe some of you are saying, I'm putting forth a lot of effort, but I don't seem to be getting a lot back. And maybe it's all because sometimes our spiritual axes 
need sharpened. So with that, the first thing I want us to notice in Philippians chapter 2 goes back to something we talked about earlier in this book and something that the author Paul is going to remind us of all through the book. And that is in order to live an effective life, we must have the right partnerships in our life. And first, it starts with our partnership with God, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Philippians chapter 2, the author, Paul, is stating a condition assumed to be true when he says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, stop. He's reminding us of what our life could be like, what resources could be in our life every day if we live truly in partnership and in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What Paul's really saying here is, there is, you know, to the Philippians, encouragement in Christ, right? You, you know that if you and I walk with Christ every day, he's going to personally encourage us. You know, he says, that there is comfort, consolation provided by God's love that he wants to pour into our life every day, right? And you know that there's this great fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. He literally comes alongside of us every day and sort of, you know, puts his arm around us and says, let's do life together, right, today? And he said, when you and I, again, have that kind of a partnership, how much more effective could we be? And then he says, if we allow the affection of God for us and the mercy of God to flow into our lives, what a difference it could make. Then in verse 2, which, by the way, the first part of this verse is actually the main clause when Paul says, complete my joy. Keep giving me reasons to rejoice, Paul is saying. Now, no church, no group of Christians ever brought Paul more joy than the Philippians. So he's not saying, you guys really have been a drag on my Christian life. I'm hoping someday I have something to rejoice about you with. No, not at all. Paul's saying, you've always been a source of joy to me. All I'm asking while I'm here in prison in Rome and God's still using me, that you just keep giving me reasons to rejoice. That as I hear what's going on in your fellowship and through your fellowship, I'm just praying that I just, as I get these reports, that it just causes me to just praise God and rejoice and be glad in what I'm hearing and seeing happening in your midst. And then he goes on to say, so that you might have the same mind, have the same love, be united in spirit and have one purpose. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the second part of the partnership, obviously, here is the right partnerships with our fellow believers. And not, not just all believers, because that might not be the right partnership. Maybe they would be a drag or a drain. We have to use wisdom as to who we partner with in life. But Paul says the right partnerships can make our life so much more effective for God. Paul's saying, I have the right partnerships with you all. 
You all have been a source of joy and delight to me. And you've been a great resource to me. And you've been a great encouragement and support to my ministry. And we're going to see that later on in our study of Philippians. And obviously, Paul starts out by saying, and the greatest partnership we could ever cultivate and nurture every day of our lives is our partnership with God, the triune God that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit wants to pour themselves into our life. Are we living with the right partnerships? Because again, Paul is saying, if you and I want to have an effective life, if we truly want our life to make a difference, again, a lot of times it's not about putting forth more effort. It's about sharpening our axe, if you will, so that the effort we are putting forth actually is even more Effective. So the right partnerships is where Paul starts out with. But then you'll notice also, Paul gives us the posture for an effective life. We find that in verse 3, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another more important than yourselves. The posture of an effective life is humility. In fact, the Bible even tells us in chapter 2, verse 8 of Philippians, that Jesus humbled himself by coming to earth. In fact, one day Jesus was with his followers and he turns to them as, you know, he would do many times in sort of teachable moments. And he said, guys, who's greater? The one who is seated at the table or the one who's standing serving the one at the table? Is it not the one who's seated at the table who's greater? And then Jesus says this, but I'm among you as the one who's serving. Wow. You think about that. He's the Lord of glory. He's always been God, always been the Son of God, always been the Lord of glory, and yet he says, I came to earth to serve. In fact, he in other times said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, there's a whole misunderstanding, even amongst Christians, as to what humility really is. Humility is simply not living life in a prideful way, so that I can be more helpful to those around me. Because pride stymies helpfulness. Pride is I'm looking only out for myself and I'm never looking out for others. But being humble doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that I'm a doormat. It doesn't mean that I let people walk all over me. It doesn't mean that I'm an enabler to others. It doesn't mean that I never say no. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, who was the ultimate servant, there were many times where Jesus said, no, nope, sorry, can't do that. He wasn't just like always at the whim of everybody around him. There was a dignity to his service because he was led by the Holy Spirit of God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But he had this posture of humility. Even though he was God, the Bible says, notice in verse 6, he didn't think existing in the form of God was something to be grasped or held on to. It doesn't mean that when Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven and came to earth, somehow he ceased to be God. What it means is he did not allow his position as God 
to hinder him or keep him from being a servant. In fact, very remarkably, notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 7. He emptied himself. It doesn't mean he divested anything again of his deity. He actually subtracted by addition. How did he do that? By taking on the form of a slave. But here's the cool thing. What Paul is really saying is this. Jesus Christ, even before he left heaven in the incarnation, took on a human body and came to earth, he was always by nature a servant. That's what it means. In other words, outwardly, you and I could finally see who Jesus has always been ever since he existed, which has been forever, because there is no beginning or end to Jesus, just like there's no beginning or end to the Father or the Holy Spirit. They've just always been and they always will be. And so Paul is saying, you realize that Jesus, by his very nature, has always been a servant. Now he just has a way to express it in a very real, tangible, visible way to us on earth by coming and placing himself inside a human body. That's humility. See, humility is when we are oriented towards people around us rather than just always thinking about ourselves. We're considering others. Our orientation is corporate. Our orientation is community. That's what Paul says in verse 4 when he says, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, we should, but about the interests of others. There should be a looking outward rather than always looking inward. That's humility. And when you and I are willing to get rid of our pride and lay aside our pride and take on the posture of humility like Jesus has always been, you and I will actually be very effective and make a difference in this world. Because prideful people are always looking for others to do for them. Humble people are not only going to look out for themselves, but they're going to always be conscious and very attentive about the people around them that God has placed. And if there's anything that they could ever do to help. Again, doesn't mean we're going to say yes to everything. Again, just because God makes us, uh, a need known to us doesn't mean he's holding us responsible to meet that need. And maybe it's a timing thing. And you even think about Jesus with Mary and Martha. They sent this messenger to Jesus and to his disciples and said, Jesus, you got to come quick because our brother Lazarus is about ready to die and you love him too. And Jesus turned to his followers and said, we're going to stay a couple more days. Because Jesus, again, wasn't, you know, at the whim of what everybody wanted when they wanted it. That's not what it means to be a humble servant. Remember at his very first miracle before he did it at that wedding in Cana when his mother came up to him and she was trying to sort of assert her motherly authority over Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus had to delicately sort of walk in his life is he had to maintain an honor and respect for his earthly mother because he wanted to be that example for all children of all ages. But he also needed to, in a sense, put Mary in her place by saying, but you realize, Mary, I created you and I'm your God. And so there, there can't be that same relationship that most mothers have with their sons here. It, this is gonna be a little bit different, you see. We need to grow in our humility. We need to 
be less like the world around us who is very self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered, all about them, and we need to adopt the posture of being humble. Humility. Because nothing will, again, stymie helpfulness and service to others like pride. Well, that's beneath me. Well, could not Jesus have said anything was beneath him? Everything that Jesus did was beneath him. He's the Lord of glory. Only everything is beneath him. And yet he came as a servant to show us by his very nature. I'm looking around as to how I can help others always. That's why such a visual example of that was the night on which he was betrayed before he died on the cross. And he, at the Last Supper, takes that towel, wraps it around his waist and stoops to wash his own disciples' feet. I mean, that's like the lowest thing a servant could do in Jesus' day. Wash the dirty, dusty, stinky feet of others. And notice also, he washed the one who would deny him and he washed the feet of the one who would betray him. That's humility. That's humility. And yet again, who's made more of an impact in our world than Jesus Christ? It's not by being prideful that we truly make an impact on others. It's by being humble. That's the posture for an effective life. But we also have here the pattern for an effective life. And that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Notice verse five. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. Now notice too, something here before we leave this point from the, the last point. He doesn't say you should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That's not what he's saying. Notice he says you should have the same attitude toward one another. Why? Because he's trying to get the Philippians to see that when we follow Jesus Christ and we learn from him and we grow from him, our orientation will always be corporate. It will always take into consideration the community and people around us. That's where it's going to end up. Jesus Christ is our pattern. And there's a couple things about this that are very important for us if we're going to live an effective life. First of all, even though Jesus was God, a very God, and again, the Lord, when he came to earth, he wanted to show us what perfect humanity would look like. Not that he expected us to be perfect, but the standard was, I'm going to show you what a perfect human being fleshed out looks like. And when he did that, in order to help us, actually, he said, I'm going to lay aside my ability to be able to lead. And while I'm here on earth in this human body, I'm going to look to God, the father, my father and God, the Holy Spirit to lead and guide me. Because Jesus said one day I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and you're going to have to learn if you're going to live an effective life, how to let the spirit guide and direct you. And I want to show you that you can trust the father and you can trust the spirit 
And, and you don't need to worry about putting your life and everything into their leadership. So that's what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus always was praying to the Father. And, and even the night on which he was betrayed, said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And over and over again throughout the Gospels, the Gospels reminded us that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Because he wanted to show us that's the pattern. See, if you and I are going to live an effective life, we've got to learn to be guided and led by the Lord. And why all of us need to learn that is I want to direct your attention then back to verse 2. How can we corporately have the same mind? How can we have the same love? How can we be united in spirit? How can we have one purpose? How can we, verse 5, have the same attitude? Same, same, same. Aren't we all different? Aren't we all to keep our individuality? Absolutely. Here's the key. God wants us all to keep our individuality. Doesn't ever want us to lose that. He created us to be diverse. So how can this group of diverse people all think the same thing, have the same love, have the same attitude? The only way to do that? is by allowing only one source to regulate all of our mindset and thinking. And that's turning our lives over to the leadership and direction of God. And especially in this time, the Holy Spirit. See, God, through the pattern that Jesus left us, wants to show us that God can literally restructure our minds. He can orient our minds. He can shape our minds. But we've all got to go to him, the source, to be able to do that. Because our minds do need restructured and reshaped and renewed. The Bible throughout the New Testament talks over and over about this. Be not conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our thinking needs corrected. And the only one that can properly correct our thinking and the way we look at things and our outlook and perspective and all of that is God himself. And Jesus wanted to give us that pattern. Not that he needed his mind reshaped by God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, but he did lay aside his independent use of his godly attributes while he was here so that he could show us what a life humanly meant to be lived was lived under the leadership and guidance of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because one day that would be how we would need to learn to live if we were going to be effective. That's why so many churches and even sets and communities of believers can't get along with each other. They don't have the same purpose. They don't have the same views on their same mind. They don't have the same love and the same attitude. Why? Because they're all trying to figure this out on their own and they're not using God as the source to direct them to a unity with diversity. I've always told people, if God is in something, whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a partnership, business, whatever, if there's Christians involved and God is in something, here's how you know God is truly in it. God's not going to lead one of you this direction and the other one this direction. 
that's not going to be of God. So either one or both parties are off. Because if we were truly getting our direction, our guidance and our leadership from the same source, God, then we would be able to come together. You see, because God's not going to lead some of us in the oasis to go in this direction and some of us in the oasis to go in this direction. And that's the pattern that Jesus laid down for us. Same again. Let me look at it again. Verse two. Complete my joy. Be of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit, one purpose, and then verse 5, the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. The only way that happens is when you and I allow the Holy Spirit to ultimately guide and direct our thought life, our thinking patterns, to shape and orient our minds every day. But there's something else in this pattern. And that is that Jesus Christ also lays down the pattern for us that the cross must come before the crown. You and I want the crown. We want the reward, but we don't want any parts of the cross. And yet you'll notice in the pattern, it says in verse 7, he emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, looked like other men, sharing in human nature, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cross first. Then, as a result, God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. See, the pattern in the Bible is cross has to come before a crown. And Jesus even told his followers, it is essential for you, if you're going to live an effective life, to take up your cross daily, deny self, and follow me. Cross. Crown's coming. Crown will come. Glory is out there. And Paul said, even to the Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that one day will be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. And Paul knew a little something about that glory because I believe that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was literally caught up to the third heaven and saw some of the glory of heaven and said, guys, I'm just telling you, I was there. You can't believe it. Our momentary light affliction Paul said to the Corinthians, is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. So glory's coming. Crown's coming. But we got to embrace the cross first, whatever that cross is for us, because that's the pattern that Jesus laid down for us to follow. What a great pattern. Now let me say this before I move on to verse, in verse 9. God, the Father, exalted him. And what I want us to see before we move to the final point this morning is this. God should be the only one that we care about promoting us, exalting us, just like Jesus. So many even Christians spend their life putting forth, again, all this effort and energy into, into trying to get promotions trying to get exalted and, and known and all of this. I mean, we live in this whole, again, social media world where it's all about being, I might not have ever done anything really significant. I just want people to notice me. I want people to know I've existed and I'm alive. Well, part of the problem with that is, again, we're going, we're going around it 
all the wrong ways from what the Bible says. You want God to exalt you? Then live in partnership with God and with the right believers every day. Secondly, have the posture of humility, not pride. And third, take on the pattern of Jesus Christ. Let God shape our thinking and take up the cross every day. And I guarantee you, God will use your life to make a difference in so many other lives. You and I don't have to worry about being promoted or exalted. All we have to do is keep following the Lord faithfully every day and God will promote us at the right time. God will exalt us when we need to be exalted. Think of Joseph. God actually wants to put our lives as Christians on display. He wants to put us out there so that we can be an example. But there's times where God has to put us through things and train us and, and get us to a place where when he finally does put us there, we're not going to be prideful about it. We're going to stay humble. And secondly, when he does put us out there like that, he knows we're really ready for it. Because how many of us, even from the world's perspective, know that how many people have been promoted in this world to positions that they weren't ready for? And oh, my goodness, did it cause problems? And maybe even some of you have been sort of on the backside of that. Maybe you are, are in a, a business or you work somewhere where somebody got promoted and, and, and to a place, a, a, a position somewhere in the company. And my goodness, they caused problems because they, they weren't properly trained for it or nobody, you know, gave them the time to, to get them ready for it. And they're just so just blowing everybody up. I can remember even that back in my Starbucks days. <laughs> I don't know why sometimes the managers of these Starbucks would throw some newbie on uh, to, the, uh, you know, to the coffee machine to make all the lattes and stuff at the height of our morning rush hour. I'm like, are you kidding? Those poor people are just melting down. You know, there's 50 people in line. Everybody's in a hurry to grab their coffee and go to work. And this poor person's still trying to steam the first pot of milk. It's like it ain't working. Let's get them off of there and let's train them in the afternoon when there's like two or three that straggle in, you know. I mean, you know, but that's the way it is. And that's why we've got to let. And here's the other thing. God will exalt. He will promote because God rewards humble service. That's what the exaltation of Christ tells us. God will reward our humble service. Maybe nobody else notices. Maybe nobody else appreciates. Maybe nobody else, you know, uh, sees what's going on. But you can better believe it. God sees your humble service and he will reward you one day for it. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the labor that you have made toward his name in loving and ministering to the saints. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus even said, even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, my Father will see it and he'll reward you one day for it. God rewards humble service. But the final point here as far as principles for an effective life is this. We need the right partnerships. We need the right posture, humility. We need the right pattern of behavior in our life, the Lord Jesus. And finally, we need the right power, the right power. Because notice in verse nine, as a result, God exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name that is above, superior to every other name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You'll notice again, even though Jesus was above everything, when he took on humanity and came to earth and died on that cross, God now placed him back to where everything else now in the universe is underneath him. Jesus Christ is superior. And there is something about his name. In other words, God the Father then sort of uh, set apart the name of Jesus to carry with it an authority and a power that no other name in the universe has. Do you understand that today? Do you live in the power and authority of Jesus's name? Do you live by the power and authority of Jesus's name? Do you live through the power and authority of Jesus's name? Take your Bibles for just a few moments and turn back to the book of Acts. I want to show you this this morning as we wrap up this message on the power for an effective life, living it in the name and by the name of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to go through this quickly. I want to direct your attention, first of all, to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. But before you look there, let me set this up for just a moment. Jesus told his followers, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to fall upon you and he's going to invade your life. And then you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the, the earth. So what do the obedient followers of Jesus do? They go back to Jerusalem and they wait. And Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, is showing us that the Holy Spirit finally descended in a very powerful way on the believers and into the believers' lives. And people were freaking out. What is going on? Oh my goodness, we've never seen such a, such a display of, of the supernatural. Is this even real? And then they start to think, are all these people drunk? What's happening here? They're, they're speaking in unknown, unknown languages. What's going on? And you know what Peter did? He took the opportunity to sort of straighten them out and say, here's what's going on. And so in verse, or in, in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, I'm going to preach. I'm going to take the opportunity for people to be questioning what's going on here to preach a message. And after the message was over, verse 37, when they heard this, the crowd, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do, brothers? And Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ. Then if you go over to Acts chapter 3, a few days later, Peter and John are approaching the temple. And as they get ready to go into the temple, there's this lame man who's, who's begging by the temple and has been almost since his birth. And he looks at Peter and John going into the temple and he says, Sirs, can you give me some money? And I love Peter's response. Peter looked, verse 4, directly at him as he did John and said, Look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting again to receive something material from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And the man immediately got up and wasn't just walking. Now again, 
This man was lame from birth. He had never walked a day in his life. Do you realize how much rehabilitation even you and I, if we've you know, been in a hospital bed for months and we've walked in our life, how long it takes us to sort of relearn this? This man, part of the miracle was not just that he instantaneously leaped up and his legs were strong and he could walk around, but he started to dance and to leap around as if, I've always done this. And what started it all? Peter looking at him and saying, in the power and authority that is carried in the name of Jesus Christ, you stand up and walk. And again, a stir. What is going on here? We, we wanted some kind of further explanation for this. So once again, Peter took the advantage and started preaching. And I want to go over to verse 15 of chapter 3. And the crowd there, he says, you killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in Jesus's name, his very name has made this man whom you see and know strong. His name. There is something about the name because God the Father has said, in his name will be all authority and power. Well, the first time this happened, 3,000 some souls came to know the Lord. Then Peter, this next time, 5,000 souls come to know the Lord. Well, that's all the religious leaders of Israel needed. They're like, we got to put a stop to this. So over in chapter 4, look at verse 5. On the next day, they call the disciples before them. All the rulers, the elders, the experts in the law, all the grand poobahs of, you know, Israel were there. And Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others who were members of the high priest family. And after making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power, or don't miss this, by what name did you do this? How dare you? Who gave you the authority or the power to do these things? And then notice verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that man stands before you healthy. And then verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Listen to me, friends. If you and I are going to have an effective life, we not only have to have the right partnerships, the right posture, and the right pattern for our life, but we need to make sure that every day you and I are living by the power and the authority invested in the name of Jesus Christ. Because there is power in that name. And let's remember that when God the Father exalted his son, he set him above everything else. 
There is nothing in the universe that is greater or higher than Jesus Christ and more authoritative and more powerful than his name, which means whatever you and I are dealing with, whatever challenges are in our way, whatever obstacles are in our way, whatever, you know, trials and tribulations you and I are going through, the power and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ is greater than all of it. Do you believe that this morning? And so we need to live in that power and authority every day. It is a power and authority that can tear down strongholds. It is a power and authority that can overcome anything that you and I are dealing with. There is nothing that you and I are struggling with right now that the name of Jesus Christ by that power and authority, again, given in that name, cannot give us the power and the authority to live by. And that's what you see with the early church in the book of Acts. They understood we can't do this on our own power. I love what the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 4, 6, not by our power, not by our might, but by the power of the spirit of God, says the Lord, who rules over all. There is power in the name of Jesus. Let's stand. As we stand and our worship team comes, let me again say this. God may not be asking you to do more in your life, but just for all of us to be more effective with what we are already doing. Sharpening our spiritual acts. Paul has laid out for us very clearly how we do that. We live an effective life by the right partnerships, the right posture, the right pattern, and living in the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. If you are here today and there is something right now that is bothering you, clinging to you, you're struggling with, it's eating away at you, I want you to know today as we sing this last song that there is power and authority in the name of your Savior Jesus to help you to deal with it and to overcome it. There is no other name that is higher, greater than the name of Jesus Christ. Claim the power and authority in the name of Jesus today. Lord, use this message to help us to be even more effective servants for you. May we take away from here, Lord, the things that will encourage and refresh our spirits and send us into this new week, Lord, just on fire for you. Not intimidated, but bold and courageous because we stand in the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen.